This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yeah. I'm Robert Krolwich. And I'm Latif Nasser. Thank you. And uh, today on Radio Lab, I, Robert, I am going to make you wrestle with your most cherished ideal, American democracy. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, great. Uh, wait, hang on a second. I'm just uh, struggling with the earphones. Now I have them on. Okay. Okay, great. And, and, and I'm going to start things off by introducing you to Yasha. Yasha Monk. I'm a lecturer on government at Harvard. He studies politics. Uh, da, 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 da. What, was, what was I was going to say? Uh, maybe we could just start with where you grew up. Yeah, so I was um, so I, I, I was born in 1982. I uh, grew up in Germany, moved, moved around a bunch of different places within Germany as a kid, and then went to college in England. Cambridge. In 2000. And I was kind of studying politics. I was a, a history major. So Yasha was studying politics, but he was studying it in the past. So he was looking at, you know, going all the way back to the cradle of democracy in ancient Greece and then how democracy came to thrive around the world. But as he was studying that, he was noticing, you know, in the news, he would see in certain countries like France or Austria, you know, there would be these parties, these far right, ultranationalist, anti-immigrant parties that were starting to gain some traction. And for Yasha... I saw some of this... This was a little bit scary. Because my family's been in the wrong place at the wrong time for about four generations. His great-grandparents perished during the Holocaust. My grandparents sort of barely survived from the Soviet Union. My parents grew up in Poland and were thrown out of the country in a huge sort of anti-Semitic wave in 1968. And so the idea that, you know, political systems that seem relatively stable and seem relatively peaceful might suddenly turn fractious and and even violent um, was something that I suppose I, I always had a sort of dim awareness of even as a kid. So so I remember being quite worried by this and having friends who were quite worried about it, but we were worried about it as sort of this weird bad thing that's going on. But I don't think we actually thought that these people might win. Jump to the early 2010s. They start winning. For the first time, Marine Le Pen will have a seat in Parliament along with seven others from her far-right party. These far-right parties in Austria and France, they start to gain power, and it's not just there. But huge swaths of Europe. What, what's, what's happening in Italy is also happening elsewhere in Europe. Similar right-wing parties start rising up in Italy, Greece, the Netherlands, Poland, Hungary. An identity crisis for the entire European continent. And it's not just Europe. You have India, Turkey. And what started off as... Of course, the United States. Unlikely impossible is now reality. Basically, there's this wave of politicians whose message was people aren't really listening to you. Your government has failed you. Trust me, I really speak for the people. 
I'm going to fix everything. And to Yasha, this was, you know, this was like a wake-up call. And not just because of immigration policy or right and left leanings of certain politicians, but even more deeply than that. I was quite worried about the way in which these political movements perhaps pretended to have some allegiance to democratic mechanisms, but actually really were enemies of it. Like, there was this one guy, the leader of the Austrian Freedom Party. Who glorified the Third Reich in various ways and really harkened back to the country's fascist past in a positive way. Uh, that wasn't a far-fetched fear, I don't think. I mean, a, a huge number of the world's dictators have been elected democratically at some point. And then they move against democratic institutions in such a way that you can't displace them democratically anymore. So for Yasha, who by this point was a lecturer at Harvard, he, you know, kept seeing this in country after country after country. He saw these citizens willingly elect these wannabe dictators into power. And so he started wondering, what is making these citizens do this? Do they do they feel like their current leaders don't get them? Do they are they are they riled up about, you know, some issue of the day like like refugees or income inequality? Or is this a sign that they're upset about something even more foundational? The political system itself. Like are they actually angry with democracy itself? And so I sat down with with a friend and colleague um, to figure it out. And his friend, it turns out, worked on something called the World Values Survey. It was just a really ambitious attempt to try and get a public opinion around the world. It's basically just a bunch of uh, social scientists who ask a whole bunch of very standard questions to a whole bunch of people all over the world. And they're like, okay, w- let's let's actually like scrutinize what what's being said in here about democracy. And when we actually looked at the numbers... Uh, we were, you know, honestly flabbergasted by what we saw. Okay, so there's actually three questions in particular that he got interested in. Okay. Here, so let's start with uh, this one. How do you feel about a strong ruler who doesn't have to bother with parliament or elections? Who doesn't have to bother with parliaments or elections. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They also asked this of Americans, just instead of doesn't have to bother with parliament, it was doesn't have to bother with Congress. Anyway. So in 1995, 24% of all Americans endorsed that kind of strongman leader. 24? So you mean you know, one out of every four? Yeah, but in the last several years, that number has jumped from 24 to 32%. So now it's a third almost. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Say a strong leader who doesn't have to deal with Congress or elections is either a very good or fairly good thing. Wow. Well, that surprises me. It's kind, it's kind of even more striking in Europe. So in, in Germany, one in six people used to like that idea. But now... It's one in three. Oh, in Germany, where they should know better. Yeah. In France and the United Kingdom, it was one in four 20 years ago. And now it's one in two. Half. Half, yeah. So every second Brit and Frenchman says, yeah, the idea of a strong ruler who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections... That's pretty appealing to me. It's not appealing to me. That is not appealing to me. Yeah. Who would say that they like to not be involved in a democracy, which is about being involved? Uh, okay, well, if you think that's crazy, here comes question number two. Uh, flat out, simple, straightforward. How important is it to you to live in a democracy on a scale of one to ten? And when you look at Americans born in the 1930s and 1940s, two-thirds of them give uh, the highest importance to living in a democracy. I say that's really essential. 
I mean, I agree with, well, two-thirds seems a little soft to me. Sure, but among uh, Americans born since 1980, it's less than one-third. Less than one-third consider it essential to live in a democracy. What? Less than a third? Yeah. So of 100 people, 100 young people, 32, 30, 30, 25 would say, I love democracy, that's very important, and the rest... What would the rest say? It's not It's not the most important thing for them deciding where to live. Okay. Well, then if, if, you are, if this is good, where would you like to, like, what would you prefer? Would you like to be living? Okay. Well, that, that's a good segue to the next question. All right. Uh, final question. Which was about army rule. So do you think that army rule is a good system of government? Army rule. So we're not, this is no civilians anymore. Soldiers running the government, soldiers following orders, soldiers giving orders. Mm -hmm. So 20 years ago, um, about one in 16 Americans thought that was a good system of government. Uh, In the most recent poll a couple of years ago, it was one in six. Uh Uh-oh. And among young and affluent Americans, it's actually gone up from 6% to 35%. So it's a nearly six-fold increase. In America? You have one in three young affluent Americans say, I, I, a military rule is a wonderful thing. That's what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That's misguided or tragic. I don't know which. So Yasha said something. He was like, look, like. I don't think if the colonels took over tomorrow, uh, one third of Americans would say, this is wonderful. Right? I, I, I don't think that's actually true, but it does show a deep lack of attachment to a current political system and this sort of sense of, you know what, I mean, let's try something new. How bad could things get? I don't think it could be much worse than what we have today. The, here's, the, here's the thing that gets to be. Let, let's imagine a well-intentioned but totally authoritarian dictator who takes over, gets used to power, and then, as dictators do, chooses to remain in place forever. The adventure of democracy is that it admits that nothing is ever right, we always have to fix it, and the system has built in it impermanence. Every six years, you elect the senator over again. Every two years, you elect the congressman over again. Every four years, you can have the option to switch presidents. Presidents can't serve beyond a particular point. There will be checks, there will be balances, there will be protection, but the whole thing admits that there's always change and always the ability to change. And this survey you just read me says, nah, we don't believe in it anymore. Well, that's dangerous to me, scary to me. And I think my response is, if that's the case, and I don't argue that people have these opinions, if that's the case, then let's fix it. Let's not throw it out. Let's repair it in some way. That's what, that's what it seems like a moment like this calls for. That's the speech. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you're saying, let's fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, and it, there's there's a lot to fix, right? Yes, obviously. There's, there's corporate money and special interest lobbyists and gerrymandering and minority groups who don't get a voice and active voter suppression in a lot of places, the weirdness of the electoral college, the two-party system in general, where it seems like they have nothing to do except for hate on each other. Um, but the thing is, so so just focusing, like, take this very specific week, this week that we are right. talking about this, there is a midterm election coming up. And so I figured let's like let's just focus on one thing, voting. Like, is there a way to just tweak this 
fundamental part of democracy. Like, can we change the way we vote so that people don't feel, as many people now do, that they're throwing their vote away, that they, their vote doesn't count, that their vote uh, um, is wasted? Okay, so what would you suggest? So what I got is a, it's kind of an alternate universe. It's, it's, it's a different way of doing elections that could have a profound effect on the way our democracy works. A.B., can you hear me? Yes. There we are. Oh, good. Okay, cool. And we're going to start off with producer Simon Adler. Yeah. So in search of democratic inspiration, I called across the ocean to the Emerald Isle to talk to this guy. So my name is A.B. Philbin Bowman. Uh, I currently work for Orgy Radio 1 on the Drive Time program. AB's a radio producer reporter for Ireland's equivalent to the BBC, known as RTE, and he's a self-described election nerd. Okay, so to sort of start from the start, please. the way I would look at this is American democracy is one of the oldest democracies in the world. It's kind of like a laptop from 1985. <laughs> and at the time, everybody was like, oh my God, this is incredible. It's so fast. It's so responsive. You're going to get so much stuff done with this. And to be fair, you did. But you've got to keep updating your operating system. Otherwise, pretty soon your democracy is struggling to deal with things like Facebook news feeds and Twitter and leaves itself open to being hacked by Russia. Now, in Ireland, we got our democracy a little bit later, the 1920s. Okay. And at that point, democracy had moved on from the 1770s, 1780s, when you guys sort of brought in your democracy. And we adopted this, what was then quite modern uh, voting system called PRSTV. PRSTV. Exactly. It sounds a bit like an STD. Uh, it does sound quite like a sexually transmitted infection. It does, yes. Oh, this seems like dead in the water for him. Hello. The, the extended version is multi-seas PRSTV. That really <laughs> sounds like an STI. <laughs> it's not. One more time. Say it again. Multi-seat PRSTV. Which stands for multi-seas proportional representation by single transferable vote. I have no idea what that means. Well... Weird as it might sound, this is a system of voting that, unlike ours, uh, can make every voter feel heard, Ooh. gets you candidates who best reflect the collective interest of the people, and, and make sure no one ever feels like they're throwing their vote away. I don't believe you. You don't, ha you don't have to believe no, okay, me. Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm following. Tell us. Tell us how this Im impossible feat, how does this even work? I'm walking through the lower part of Dublin Central. Well, l let's just put this in concrete terms. Great. Okay, so 2016, there's an election for the national parliament in the Dublin Central District. It's blocks of brick row houses punctuated by these brightly colored pink or purple or yellow doors. You can think of it like an election district. Uh, in Ireland, it's what's known as a constituency. A couple adult stores, low-rise white public housing units. It's a predominantly working-class constituency with a lot of difficulties. This is Maureen O'Sullivan, a longtime resident of the constituency with a shock of white hair. And I've always been involved with youth clubs, etc., doing voluntary work and then teaching in communities in the, the area. And so back in February of 2016, this area of Dublin, uh, along with the rest of the country, w was holding their parliamentary elections, elections for what they called TDs. Wait, what are TDs? Right, okay. Well, TD is the Irish, the Gaelic for Chartadola, which translates into Member of Parliament. At that time, Dublin Central had three of these TD seats, three people representing them in Parliament, one of whom 
<clears throat> I was elected in 2009. Was Maureen. And I would be, I am independent, not allied with any party. And going into that 2016 election, things were looking pretty uncertain for Maureen. Uh, first of all, there was a field of 15 candidates running for those three seats. And worse, seats one and two uh, were expected to be snagged quite easily by these two high-profile major party candidates. Yeah. This again is A.B. Bowman, who actually covered this 2016 election. They're, they're not locked down, but these are people who look like they are going to get elected. And what that means is you, you've got this wide-open field of folks all fighting against Marine for that third and final seat. Who's our contenders? Well, right. So we're going to focus in on two of them. Can I just get you to introduce yourself? Of course. Yeah. So I'm Mary Fitzpatrick. First, we've got Mary Fitzpatrick. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, on the spectrum of American politics, do you know where you fall? <sighs> I, you, you, you just have two parties. <laughs> She's pretty liberal, been around Irish politics for a while. Are you interviewing me already? Okay. <laughs> We're on. Um, and second, Gary Gannon, who's a young community worker. This brash guy with red stubble on his face. Quite interesting, quite authentic. And, and he's sort of an interesting one to watch. Because he's representing this brand new political party. A plucky upstart. I think that's what they call it in the West Wing. <laughs> I remember, yeah. Well, and uh, did you have a slogan or anything? like? Oh, yes, no, what an amazing slogan. It was very simple. And it was just the one word. If. I, I stole it completely from an old uh, fable about when the Macedonian army was marching on Sparta. And they sent Sparta a message saying that if we win, we will burn Sparta to the ground, we will enslave your women and kill your children. And Sparta sent back one word message just saying... If. If. Like I said, brash. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got other voices who are left-wing or environmentalist or, or, or others. So that's our field. All right. And now here's how things actually work over in Ireland. Voting is underway in the Republic of Ireland as the country elects 157 new members of its parliament. So day of the election comes as, a, as an Irish citizen. You walk into the uh, voting booth and it's a very, very long ballot because it has all of the candidates, all 15 of them, their photo, their name, and then a line next to them. Okay. And, and this ballot is a key component of that updated Irish laptop of democracy. Uh, because instead of just filling in the circle next to one of those 15, you say, My number one choice is this guy. My number two choice is this lady. My number three choice is this person. And you can go all the way down the ballot, giving preferences to as many different people as you like. You write in a number next to each candidate. How about one man, one vote? Got it. Well, uh, it, it's still one man, one vote. No, it can't be. No, it is. It is. It is. It is. A at the end of the day, your vote will only have counted for one person. However, in the voting process... what You're, you're not just measuring what everyone's first choice is. Like, y you might have a favorite choice, but you're not totally equal about the other three choices. And what this system allows us to do is to reflect that. It allows you to say how you feel about the rest of the candidates. And if your first choice doesn't make it, if he or she is way down the list and out of the running, then your vote lives on in the form of your second choice. So for as long as there's a viable candidate with your number on it, your vote will stay alive in the system. Is, it, is this too early for me to raise a, a warning flag? Or you I can wave. I may ignore it, but let's see it or hear it. The, the commitment that people make to voting is slight. Most of us are into lunch, sports, work. And then maybe on the day of a vote, they have their best friend, so you got to vote for Sally. Like they know one. They, they're not even going to know seven. Yeah. 
So the first smell of this is it would take us more time than we want, and we might walk away from this exercise because we don't feel prepared. You can engage with this on whatever level you'd like, Robert. If you only know one candidate's name, you can just put your one next to that person and hand in your ballot and you're done. Hmm. Or let's say there's a candidate on there you really, really don't like. You can leave them off the ballot entirely. You're, you're ranking your preferences. It's very simple. Fairly hmm. good answer. Okay. So let me walk you through how this plays out. Mm-hmm. So polls close at 10 p.m. on Friday, February 26th. And then... Then all hell broke loose. <laughs> General election 2016 on RTE Radio 1 with Rachel English and Sean O'Rourke. The real action begins. It's going to be a day of drama, shocks and surprises. So, so what happens is we vote on the Friday and on Saturday morning... The votes actually get counted. So for Dublin Central... Dublin Central gets counted in one central location, which is the RDS. Let's go first to Ireland's largest count centre, the RDS. The Royal Dublin Society. Sean, thank you very much. Welcome indeed to the RDS where it's we're... this counting. barn-like building with big vaulted ceilings. Big, big hall, huge amount of noise. Firstly, welcome to the count centre here. Okay, well, I didn't realise we were going to go through the post-traumatic trauma of the whole thing. I've kind of blacked it out. No, I'm joking, actually, it was lovely. The doors open at nine o'clock and I arrived and... This Bethrong arriving. This is Mel. Mel Mokyaboon. He's a campaign worker for our endangered incumbent, Maureen. Maureen O'Sullivan. And on the morning of the count, as he pushed his way through these heavy wooden doors, what he would have seen was this cavernous hall filled with people milling about. Everybody's got clipboards. There's people with tons of sandwiches made. and Tea and coffee in abundance and everybody's really excited. And so, shortly after nine o'clock... All the boxes come in. These giant metal boxes of ballots. So the boxes are opened. Literally, they're lifted up and there is a, a cascade and a spilling of all this paper. Because it's all done by paper voting. Wait, what? Yeah. We tried electronic voting in this country and we didn't like it because it was very fast. And I think we realized that the drama of an election and and also the, the ritual of democracy gets everybody engaged and gets people watching. It's like watching a, sport, a big sports game. You don't want it to be over in five minutes. They're off. And so... Time now for our live update. I have to warn, as we always do at this time on this day, we're talking tallies, first of all, which obviously can skew the results. Not uh, just at the RDS and not just for Dublin Central, but all across the country. Vote counters are dumping boxes of votes and going through them and putting them into stacks. First, in Kilkenny is Justin McCarthy. Rough bundles, in no particular order. 75% of the boxes have been tallied here and they include And so early on here, the, the counters are just trying to get a handle on how many first-choice votes each candidate is getting. From Cavan, Audrey Carville. 100% of the boxes are open and... A and, well, the ballot counters are doing this official count. There's another group of people standing next to them... Up the Atlantic Way in Donegal... ...doing their own unofficial calculations. Yes, definitely. The tally men. 88% of boxes opened and tallied... Cork North Central. All boxes opened, all sheets tallied. These tally men, there are several of them put forward by each candidate and... They're just looking over the railings, waiting for you to turn that ballot. Brash up start Gary Gannon again. So they can shout out the name of the person that got the number one preference. They're like, Gannon number one, Gannon, Burke. And they're just counting them up. And what they're counting is number one. Yes, they're shouting out and tallying the first choice labeled on each ballot. So you have an understanding whether you're at the races or not. 
which it seemed like Gary was. We have a 98% tally, and there is a growing belief here that the third seat will be between Gary Gannon and... He was getting a lot of first preferences. So... I walked in, I got pulled over by one of our national newspapers to do an interview. Let's bring Gary Gannon in. Hiya, Gary, it's too early to be saying you're over the line, but you're, you're going well in Dublin oh Central. Oh, God, it's far too early. I think All the radio crazy. researchers are coming over, grabbing me, bringing me over to speak on the radio. There's a bunch of you done 9% as well, so uh, we could be in for another dogfight there. Absolutely, yeah. I've cancelled my weekend plans. I think, I'll be, <laughs> I think I'll be here for a while. It was genuine, like a, a real nice sense of excitement. But... Not for everyone. So that morning, I was at home doing different things. Again, this is incumbent Maureen O'Sullivan. Well, what did you do? Did you make breakfast? Did you go for a walk? I did. I had, I had my breakfast. I probably walked the dog. Um, what type of dog? Um, a white, fluffy um, dog. Okay. What's his name? <laughs> uh, his name is Bailey. So I brought him for a walk. Are you listening to the radio? No, 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 You're no. totally disconnected. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I let my campaigners go over to be part of the tally campaigners and it's starting to, to kind of including make, Mel so within within the first hour from some of the tallies that we were seeing um, you know maybe, you know like Maureen isn't isn't picking up enough votes I was saying oh I hope this is not going to be an early day where there's no need for you to hang around because nobody's in the race any longer um, and then I think I was driving when I got the first call from um, my campaigners over in the, the count saying it's not looking good. Was elected. Let's go back now to the busiest count centre of them all, to Mary Wilson in the RTS. Rachel, thank you very much. A first count imminent, we believe, here in Dublin Central. Meanwhile, the counters take all those ballots, now officially sorted by first preference, and, and they pick up the stack for each candidate on the table and, and walk that stack back to... This wooden shelving unit. Again, Mary Fitzpatrick. Behind the tables, at a little bit of a distance, in the, in the centre. This giant sort of cubby. Pigeonholes. Just like light, flimsy wooden boxes. And this is the sacred shrine of Irish democracy on this day. The cubby. Absolutely. Because, because when they've counted all of the first preference votes... They placed them all in their respective cubbies. There's a hush in that part of, of the arena. And the returning officer stands up on a stage with a microphone and goes... Following is the result of count one. Here is the first count for the constituency of Dublin Central. 68. And they read out every candidate, how many number one votes did they get. 2021. And uh, first off the bat... At the end of the first count, first and second are pretty much locked down with the two people everybody expected to win. But, 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 but then in third place, unexpectedly, is Mary Fitzpatrick. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very pleased to be in third position on the first count. Now, with our system of voting, at this point... You're done. The The election's over. Uh, the two frontrunner candidates would have each won a seat, and then Mary Fitzpatrick would have won a seat. Gary and Maureen, they'd be out. Done. But in Ireland, not so. In Ireland, they're just getting started. So back to the race. And remember, at this moment, uh, Mary Fitzpatrick is in third, Gary is in fifth, and in seventh... At that stage, I was listening to the radio, and I knew what they were saying about Dublin Central. ...is incumbent Maureen O'Sullivan. And what okay. were they saying? That, um, 3%. It appears almost certain that Joe Costello and Maureen O'Sullivan are set to lose out. Myself and Joe Costello, you're out. I had Sorry, some... Why? why like, because of the numbers. Know? I think the feeling was I was too far down that first preference to come back up. 
but I've been looking at the early results coming in from around the country. But like I said, it's not over yet. So the way the vote progresses is the sheriff or the presiding officer starts to eliminate candidates. The first elimination is the bottom three candidates. Those candidacies are gone and in the bin. Since Gary's in fifth and Maureen's in seventh, they're safe uh, for now. But the bottom three candidates, they're gone. Why three? Because they are so far out that mathematically they could never come back. Between the three of them, they've only got like 150 votes. So we get rid of all three of them. And redistribute those ballots. So if you voted for those people... They just go, okay, who did you vote for as your second choice? And... The point is, your vote is still live and is still part of this election. And so, those 150 votes, those 150 ballots, they begin to do this sort of ballet. The ballots are all in these pigeonholes. Everything is visible. The vote counters walk back to that shrine, to that cubby. Yeah, yeah. And pull the ballots from the cubby hole for those three candidates. Then march these ballots back to to the front table. And sort them then into bundles of second preference on the ballot. So now you've got stacks for every candidate that was listed as a second choice. And we distribute them. They take them back to the cubby where they are then added to the remaining candidates' first preferences. And that becomes the second count. Okay. (sighs) Okay, so what they want is everybody who voted to the degree that it is possible should maybe be participating in electing somebody to the legislature. Exactly. All right. So, excuse me, what time is it now? uh, We're probably middle of the afternoon at this point. And when do we start? We started at nine in the morning. Okay. Point taken. People are having a good time. No, no, no. no, What do you mean? I am now watching this program for five hours. That's a long time. I will challenge your statement that just because a competition unfolds slowly, that it is without drama or suspense. All right. (sighs) I'm sorry that we're making this so hard for you. That's fine. But you are not making it easy for us. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the scene. Dublin Central is reduced to three seats. So I'm looking at this going, okay, Mary Fitzpatrick, our candidate in third after the first count, has 2,500 votes. Gary Gannon, currently in fifth, he's only 200 votes behind her. And my instinct is he's going to be more transfer friendly. He's going to get more second choice votes than her. I think he could overtake her. And I start watching where the transfers are going. And I start to be proven right. Gary Gannon of the Social Democrats did very well on transfers. So count two, Gary Gannon is getting 20 votes. And Mary Fitzpatrick's only getting two. Count three. The whole process repeats, knock somebody out, do the ballot ballet, redistribute those transfers. Gary Gannon picks up 60 votes, and Mary Fitzpatrick only picks up seven. So he's gaining on her already. They're talking about me. They're asking, who is this guy? Where does he come from? All of these things. And then I was getting phone calls. Mary's stock is falling while Gary's Mary's stock is sta- Mary's stock is staying static. You know, we were struggling for transfers. That, that was the issue. She's not going up much, and the others are gaining on her. So, yeah, it's painful. It's not pleasant. And bear in mind, you've still got other people picking up votes there. We're seeing little pickups for Maureen. Maureen picked up 49. But not a, not a lot. We're moving ahead slowly. OK, we have a, a, a Dublin Central count coming in. Count four. Again, eliminate the bottom candidate, redistribute those votes. This time around, really not much changes. Then count five. The next person going out has got 800 votes. 31 of them go to Mary Fitzpatrick, but also 190 of them go to go to Gary Gannon. Gary Gannon has surprised a lot of people in his ability to pick up transfers from... And Gary Gannon has just jumped into fourth place. 
We've got quite a fight now on our hands. The standings as they are. So at the places are Mary Fitzpatrick in third place. She's just barely holding on. In fourth, hot on her heels, is Gary Gannon. And then way at the back of the pack, still in seventh, is incumbent Maureen O'Sullivan. That's the state of play at count five. Count number six. Oh, here we go. Um, continuing coverage. Michael Michael Gallagher is here. We're guys. Hello, we're back. <laughs> this is where two two big things happen. Everybody's having their own conversations. Obviously, one Mary Lou Macdonald of Sinn Fein and Dublin Mary Lou Macdonald of Sinn Fein, one of the front runners, expected to take a seat, gets over the line. And also, I'm walking around just hugging people. <laughs> Gary Gannon now jumps into third place. It was invigorating. Pushing Mary Fitzpatrick out of a winning spot. Like that, it was on the transfers. I got caught. And, and that's it. She never recaptured it. So the woman who under our system would have won off the bat, she lost out. That is it. You know? Still hanging on in second to last, but but also disheartened, is our incumbent Maureen O'Sullivan, who's expecting to lose. And I suppose maybe seven o'clock, people started to arrive. She actually invited her campaign staff and volunteers back to her place for a, a concession party. And I said, when people came in, I don't want to know anything about the elections. I'll catch up tomorrow. Unknown to me, because I was busy with the tea and the, the drinks and the food, some of them in the house were still in contact with those over in the RDS. To uh, the Dublin Central constituency and to our reporter, Damien O'Mara. Damien, you have a development to report. One of those guys still over in the RDS was Mel. I did have a sense looking at the numbers and saying, well, OK, but if and then maybe <laughs> there's a chance. There's a chance in this. Well, was that a crazy thought to have or a very smart thought to have? Um, It was just a thought to have. (laughs) Because uh, despite the fact that all day the media had been saying that Maureen was out... Maureen O'Sullivan sent to lose out. Outgoing TD, Maureen O'Sullivan. Maureen O'Sullivan might be eliminated. At count seven, something starts to happen. Three furlongs to go. Coming around the bend, Gary Gannon looks like he's in pole position, but... All of a sudden, we weren't reallocating people's second preferences or their third preferences. We'd got to the stage where we were reallocating people's fourth, fifth, and sixth preferences. Because, keep in mind, most people's votes are still sloshing around the system. And at this point, not only has their top choice been knocked out, but their second and third as well. So their vote is now being cast for their fourth, fifth, or sixth place choice. And a lot of those, they start going to Maureen. She's known people for years, been elected twice previous to that. So even people who weren't voting for number one, number two, number three, their votes were still carrying past the fours and the fives and just mauled me on those transfers. So we go to count eight. Beginning to make a bit of ground into this straight. Maureen makes this massive jump, vaulting her ahead of two opponents into fourth place. Now, just a couple hundred votes behind Gary. Right. Did you have any sense this No, 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 because I didn't have the television on. And they decided not to tell me, not to raise my hopes. We're on the ninth count at the moment. So, the ninth count. Uh, the situation is that... Another candidate is axed. They redistribute her votes. It's it's coming down. It's coming down to it. And when they count up those transfers... Does that mean, then, that Gary Gannon is likely to be elected? Or what's the situation <coughs> there, Michael Gallagher? Maureen gets some 300 more transfers than Gary. Meaning, suddenly... Gary Gannon is precisely eight votes ahead of Maureen O'Sullivan. Oh my God, I did not see that coming. She's within eight votes of him. Around quarter to ten. But Maureen, meanwhile, is still convinced she's going to lose. 
she's actually heading down to the count center to concede the race. I said to myself, I should go over and concede. So I um, came out into the car, and as I'm driving over to concede, I was just at the, the traffic lights, I can picture it, and at that stage, the phone call comes. She looks at her phone, and it's one of her campaign staff calling. I, I thought, why are they ringing me just to hurry me up to get over or whatever? But in fact, they were calling because... In Dublin Central, but Brian Dowling, you've been... Just as I mentioned your name, Brian, yes, we're going to Dublin Central. My last time up. This is the uh, result of the 11th count for Dublin Central. And I deem the following candidate to be elected, and they are Maureen O'Sullivan. In her car, Maureen did eventually pick up. And then it was, where are you? You're about to be elected. You're going to be elected. She put down the phone, drove to the count centre, and when she arrived... Um, (laughs) Great applause, great hugs, great kisses. So it was just a lovely explosion of feeling, warm feelings towards me from everybody. Maureen O'Sullivan, congratulations. Thank you very much. You're a very relieved woman. I'm a stunned woman. I was at home reconciled to a new life outside of politics, and then suddenly I'm back in the frame. We had thought that we were too far behind to... So I just said, look, I know what Lazarus felt like. It was, uh, it was that kind of moment. Well, so is this a story of a multi-seat proportional representation by single transferable vote working out exactly as it, it's meant to? Or is this sort of a perversion of the system? No, it absolutely is. It worked, that day worked out exactly as single transferable votes was meant to do. One last time, the gracious Gary Gannon. Everybody got their everybody got their say, and everybody got their vote. And don't get me wrong when I say like it did hurt, but I mean I was twenty eight, twenty nine then. Like there was a huge sense of like we'll show you, like when we'll be back. So single transferable vote on that day worked against me, but you know I think it worked out perfectly. Perfectly. <laughs> I mean, let me just see if I get this right. There's this woman. Maureen, who hardly anybody loves, she scores almost no votes as as the favorite. She's just everybody's, yeah, you know, a, a fourth, fifth, sixth, I'll choose Maureen. And yet, because the votes are keep getting shuffled and shuffled and shuffled, it's Miss Meh who becomes the, the winner. Like she's she's chosen because a lot of people don't hate her. Yeah, well, so. Uh, so here's what it makes me think of, right? And I, I had this moment where I was just imagining if we had been using this at various crucial moments in our very recent history, things could have gone an entirely different way. Take the American presidential election of 2016 okay. uh, between Donald Trump, Trump yeah. Hillary Clinton, but also Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Yeah, but nobody right? voted for them. Hardly well, anybody. no, but hardly hardly anybody. That number of hardly anybody's that was that's a sizable enough number that they could have swung the election one way or the other. If you look at really key states, the deciding states, uh, if you presume uh, Gary Johnson's votes were split, and if you presume all of Jill Stein's votes went to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton would have won Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and the whole kit and caboodle. Well, that's interesting. 
Now, the weird thing is you can just keep playing this game and, and it'll drive you crazy, but you can keep <laughs> playing it. So if you go back to the 2016 Republican primaries where Donald Trump emerged victorious, right? Over 10 people or something like that. Or Over more. 10 people, right? right? But there was a sizable number of people in those primaries who were never Trumpers. If those people uh, had been able to block here. their votes together, they might have been able to uh, rally behind a candidate who was not Donald Trump. And then rewind even further back to the 2000 election, where the number of votes that Ralph Nader got in Florida were more than the difference between Bush got and Gore got. Now, elect a, elect a Republican, can you? Okay, so 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 go back to Ross Perot, right? Uh, George H.W. Bush was running against Bill Clinton in 1992. Oh, that's right. uh, Ross Perot, it's very controversial whether he really was a spoiler in that election, but I mean, if you ask the the Bush people, they say he definitely was. And so if the Perowers went to Bush, that then like Bill Clinton would have just been a historical footnote. He wouldn't have been the president. Like it's like a huge, huge seismic difference in in world history. <laughs> so when we come back, we're not going to be looking at my own imaginative math. We're going to look at what is ranked choice actually look like if it was in the United States because it is in the United States. That's about to happen Yeah. when we come back. Hi, my name is Corey, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. NYC Now delivers the most up-to-date local news from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. With three updates a day, listeners get breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from across New York City. By sponsoring programming like NYC Now, you'll reach our community of dedicated listeners with premium messaging and an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to get in touch and find out more. Welcome back. I'm Robert Krulwich. I'm Latif Nasser, and this is Radiolab. And we're trying to fix democracy in this hour in little bits and pieces. Yeah. So let me let me just back up for a second, because we have been talking about this and thinking about this around the office for for a little while. And at some point, as we were as we were kind of meditating on this dwindling faith in democracy, one of our fellow producers at our sister show, More Perfect, okay. uh, Sarah Kari, she just took me and Simon. Great. Great. And just dragged us into a studio. Okay, so um, we've been having this conversation about 
whether our democracy is broken for like a few months now. And like every meeting that we've had, I've been the one in the room being like, guys, our democracy is fine. Like, have you seen other places? This is crazy. Like, who are these people that think like our democracy is broken? Like, they don't know what they're talking about. And do you know why? Like, where, where, where's that feeling coming from? Well, uh, okay. Can you tell me your name? Uh, Uzma. And who are you? Probably because of this woman. Uh, I'm Uzma. <laughs> I'm Uzma. I mean, who are you in relation to me? Oh, I'm your mom. My mom and both of my parents actually grew up in Pakistan. That is the beginning 25 years of my life where, where I spent. And I feel that... Which is a, a pretty young country. And it's it's just struggled so much to keep its democracy alive and healthy. And uh, I, I, I saw and uh, the consequences of not getting the full dem- democracy there in Pakistan. Uh, so that uh, then after living 25 years of next 25 years of my life in America, I really found out the value of democracy as an individual and uh, as, a, as a group also. So I I can differentiate now very well between the, those two. So that's kind of how I've always understood our democracy. Um, but then, Simon, I, I listened to your Ireland story with uh, all of this ranked choice voting stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the first moment when I was like, oh, like maybe maybe our way of doing things is broken like maybe hmm. we do need an update okay and okay why <laughs> well, what what about it uh made made you switch teams because um it, it made me suddenly aware of the fact that in our system candidates don't actually need a majority of the votes to win right. so you you have candidates who then make that calculation where they say I only really have to win the votes of people who are in my base. And mm. if that's if those if my base is bigger than everybody else's base, then like screw everyone else. Yeah. It it seems like in a democracy most people should vote for the person who wins, not just that the person who wins is going to have the biggest base, totally. like a bigger base than everybody else. Like it should be that most people are in some way, in some preference, supporting the person who comes to power. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny, like when I heard about ranked choice voting, I was like, oh, like th- this system is so cool because it it's I feel like it addresses that exact problem. And so I I totally got sucked into it and I started looking around and it turns out there are a bunch of people who think that this could be used here in the U.S. And not only that, it already is. And when I asked around, uh, a number of people pointed to this moment in 2000 with the election when uh, Bush loses the popular election, but he wins because he wins in Florida. Um, and so people look at the the results in Florida and see that a bunch of votes that might have gone to Al Gore, they go instead to Ralph Nader, who then becomes, you know, sort of notorious as this spoiler that that maybe ruined the election for Al Gore. And, and after 2000, at that point, you do see some cities that start to adopt ranked choice voting at the local level. And so what I did is... Um, 
Okay, I'm putting my phone on airplane mode. I, I grabbed Latif, yep. and we kind of did this, um, like, cross-country rank-choice voting tour. Um, and the first place we're going to start with... Hello, San Francisco? Yes, San Francisco is here. Is San Francisco. Is this Dominic? Yes, this is. Oh, hey, Dominic, what's up? Hi, what's up? <laughs> so this is Dominic Fercasa. Check, 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 yeah. He he used to do radio. You got the pipes for it, Dominic. Hey, let me know if you need any ad spots so we can get right to it, you know? <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> but he uh, now he's a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm a city hall reporter for the Chronicle. Yeah, so the very first ranked choice election in San Francisco happened in 2004. Uh, but it was actually a ranked choice voting became, uh, I guess, the city's method or the city's system, if you will, uh, back in 2002, where there was a, a ballot initiative that was passed by voters um, uh, that said, like, look, this is going to be the system that, that we're going to implement going forward. So the vast majority of local elected offices are, are chosen with, with ranked choice contests. So city council. The board of supervisors. The school board. Um, our, like, assessor recorder. And in one very specific election. The case in the mayor's race. The case in the mayor's race. Okay, great. I can't believe this was just that a few months ago. Uh, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago at this point. Um, okay, so early 2018, the San Francisco mayor's race kicked off. And when it really kicked into gear, there were three leading candidates. You had... Hi, I'm Board of Supervisors President London Breed. London Breed. Um, and you had... Hello, I'm Mark Leno. Former San Francisco Supervisor Mark Leno. And you had... Hi, I'm Jane Kim. A current supervisor, uh, Jane Kim. And these are not these are all Democrats. The field of candidates is set now. KPI X5, Joe Vasquez is Okay. Alive. So, out of the gate. New front runner in the San Francisco mayor's race, and it's London Breed. This campaign is a winning campaign. She was the more moderate, more established candidate. She's getting one heck of a bounce in the polls. And she had a fairly strong lead and a, a lot of wind in her sails. A two-to-one leap over her two closest rivals, Mark Leno and Jane Kim. And as the campaign made its way to election day, things were going pretty well. We are winners! It was almost like, sure, there are three names on the ballot. But at the end of the day, it was more like London Breed, London Breed, and London Breed. The favorite in the recent polls heading into Tuesday's election. But then, right before the election, something happened that you basically never see in American politics. Um, we are proud to stand together to say that we are united in our belief that we need fundamental change here in the city and county of San Francisco. In the very last few weeks before Election Day, the, the two underdogs, Jane Kim and Mark Leno, they held a press conference on the steps of City Hall. Mark and I are opponents, as everyone knows. They stood outside City Hall, uh, literally joined hands and said, And I'm proud to be the first set of candidates to truly take advantage of the ranked choice voting system and encourage our supporters to vote for both of us. Wait a second. So what she's saying is vote for me, definitely vote for me, but also vote for this guy who I'm running against. Yeah. Exactly. Vote for me first, but vote for Jane second, or vote for me first and vote for Mark second. So, like, if one of us were to come in last, like, let's say Mark comes in last, if all the people who voted for him ranked Jane as their second choice, then all of those votes would go to her, and vice versa. That way, 
they actually have a better chance uh, of beating the frontrunner. London Breed. And that made a, a lot of sense. They were both, quote unquote, more progressive candidates and, you know, saw each other, uh, uh, at least the rhetoric goes, as the person that they'd like to see as mayor, if not themselves. Was that was that a surprise move to you as you were covering it? Did you see that coming? I didn't see it coming. No, I, I think that was a, a, a surprise to a lot of people. I almost had to do a double take when I saw these new campaign posters supporting both Jane Kim and Mark Leno for mayor. After that press conference, Mark Leno and Jane Kim started appearing in campaign ads together. I'm Jane Kim. And I'm Mark Leno. Campaigning for one another. Mark and I are opponents. But Jane and I agree. You should pick our next mayor. Not the billionaires. And so basically the whole campaign is like, if you don't vote for me first, then at least vote for me second. Let's stand together. Vote for me and Mark Leno. Vote for me and Jane Kim. KPIX 5's Joe Vasquez is with the London Breed campaign, where just moments ago, Breed addressed the crowd. Joe? So, on election night, uh, London Breed has a pretty commanding lead uh, as the polls are coming to a close. And basically, she's trying to get up to this marker of 50% of the votes plus one vote. That's a majority. Um, And if she can get to that, then she wins. There's no rank choice runoff, there's no vote swapping, Um, and as the night goes on... She is not yet declaring victory, but this crowd is celebrating. She's got like a double-digit lead, like things are looking pretty good. They are celebrating the person they believe could be the next mayor of San Francisco. Holy smoke, she's beating Mark Leno by 10 percentage points, and she's beating Jane Kim by more than that. So we're getting to midnight. I'm completely bleary-eyed, staring at my laptop, refreshing the Department of Elections website every few seconds. When 12.30 at night... It happens. In the early returns, London Breed had a sizable lead, but she didn't reach 50%. She came in just shy of 50%. So the ranked choice voting system kicked in and... And all of a sudden, this entire race has changed. Okay, so the rankings had been London Breed number one, Mark Leno number two. Jane Kim, who was in third place, was now eliminated in that ranked choice system. But when Kim got eliminated, a huge chunk of her voters, about three out of four, went to Leno because Leno was their second choice. And now, by a razor-thin margin, Mark Leno is leading the race. The Kim-Leno strategy had come to fruition. He's up 0.84% the slimmest of leads. The mayor's race is still too close to call. The race would actually drag on for days. As more ballots got counted. Tens of thousands of outstanding ballots. We didn't have a mayor chosen until, I think, eight days later. When... In a gymnasium packed with screaming supporters, out walked the new mayor of San Francisco. London Breed. Yes, I'm your mayor. Mark Leno came up just short. He came within 1.1% or a a little over 2,500 votes. Oh, man. Um, So, I mean, okay, it didn't work in that he didn't win, but you can't say that it was completely ineffective. And so so ultimately, what what did people think of this whole, like, Mark? Leno, Jane, Kim coming together. Uh, people saw the dual endorsement strategy as as gaming the system, as saying, look, 
they are doing this in order to keep London Breed from winning. And that, that, that was at in, your paper, right? That was the editorial uh, board? Yeah, our editorial board uh, uh, said said as much. You know, and, and, and I think that's that's not just the ed board. I mean, people do feel that way, that it was this strategy, you know, especially London Breed supporters who saw, who saw a teaming up, a piling on. And, you know, in this, I mean, just to kind of, just very quickly just zoom out all the way, I think people just find that weird in a country in which politics ends up being a zero-sum game oftentimes in which you are, you know, relentlessly attacking your opponent, beating them down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But at the same time, that's very much, um, you know, there might be some people at my own newspaper that disagree with me, but I think that's very much in the spirit of what ranked choice voting invites. Coalition building. Now, Dominic wanted to be clear that in the case of the mayor's race, this Coming together of opponents. I don't want to make it sound like it was just some kind of kumbaya thing, you know, because that re- that wasn't the case. But at the very next stop on our tour, <clears throat> we actually found that case. <clears throat> the kumbaya case. Hey, Curtis, are you there? Yeah, I am. Which, also on the line, we have Latif. Hi, how you doing? Hey, what's up? We heard about... From this guy. Curtis Gilbert, and I'm a reporter at American Public Media, but I used to be a reporter at Minnesota Public Radio. So Curtis told us in Minneapolis, they actually started using ranked choice voting in 2009. But it's gotten much more interesting since then. So in um, 2013 was the first time Minneapolis actually had like a competitive mayor's race. Uh, under ranked choice voting. There is a record-breaking number of candidates vying to succeed Minneapolis Mayor R.T. Ryback, who's stepping down at the end of this year. 35 candidates signed up to run to replace him. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis Gilbert covers Minneapolis politics. He joins me in studio. Boy, you're going to be busy. Yeah, you betcha. <laughs> I mean, there were so many... I mean, 35 candidates is a lot. Unlike the race in San Francisco, the mayoral race in Minneapolis... People say, aren't you the Republican? ...did have more diverse candidates. And I say, sure, I've done some work in the Republican Party. And I also stand fiercely for marriage equality, always have. There was a Republican, an Independent, a bunch of Democrats. It was a wide-open, free-for-all race, and it was really really interesting. That despite all that... They were very, very civil. Thank you very much. It's (laughs) nice to see you're not utterly infallible. I always thought you were. Very, very gentle to each other. We won't be rude with each other because it doesn't benefit us to be rude with each other. Right. And this is one thing that, you know, the advocates of ranked choice voting um, sort of look at as a positive. You know, voters don't voters are turned off by negative campaigning. And there's a theory that goes that if you're hoping to get like second and third choice votes, you'll be much nicer to your opponent so you don't alienate their supporters. So maybe you get a second or third choice vote. And it did seem like there was an element of that playing out um, in in the race. Uh, I will talk more about the issues because I think I've run out of time. Thank you. So at worst, there was like some light ribbing. They said we could finish our sentences if we run out of time, but I think that was a run-on sentence. <laughs> there were polite stage logistics. Getting out of that chair is a little challenging, so we may want to pass the microphone around. <laughs> and thank you, uh, thank you, Jackie. Plenty of thank yous. Yeah, I mean, the the most remarkable one of all uh, was the final debate. I was there, and it was in a church. I think it was in downtown Minneapolis. I can't remember what the church was. Um, 
And at the end of the debate, the candidates, and I think there were eight of them, all kind of put their arms around each other. And one of them suggested that they all sing. Anymore, but I, I was Kumbaya, my Kumbaya. No. After the debate? After the debate. Oh, Lord, Kumbaya. That's going on Instagram. <laughs> the farewell tour. Right there. So it's like, I mean, it's almost like a cartoon, right? Like the, the Kumbaya, it's really funny, right? But it's also, it's... It's also, I think for a lot of people right now, that feels like a relief. It feels like a relief to hear politicians not biting each other's heads off. And that's that's something that comes from ranked choice voting. You find consensus, you find coalition, you find commonalities instead of differences. But that also flattens everyone out. If, if everyone ends up running to the middle and then you just have kind of a a bland consensus where no one's saying bold things and everybody is just kind of middle. So in a way, when you make this choice, you're choosing for do this carefully. Right. Do but, this carefully. Now, I wondered about that because I was thinking maybe don't do this carefully. Maybe have a country that can be dynamic, although right now I'm not so sure. So I, too dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but um, that is in deep in a deep way. That's what's being asked here. Yeah, like what do we what do we actually want? Like, do we want a system where you know you are lined up behind your alpha dog who's gonna who's gonna argue for all of the things you want and 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 maybe you're gonna get them, but maybe you're also gonna lose them all. Or or do you want to you know be in a system where you know you're we're all kind of sort of begrudgingly bought into uh, our, our second place person who we can kind of get behind, but like it definitely wasn't our, you know, it's not our ideal. And I think that's a question, that's like a soul searching kind of a question. Like, what do you want and what do we want this country to be? Right. And for that reason, I, I like, I don't know how I feel about well, it. Well, nothing's going to be perfect. I, I think what's really interesting is what seems sort of mechanical and um, technical it does affect the tone of your country and of history. So the world we've got is the function of how we vote now. Change the system of how we vote, you might get a very different world. How different? What different? Where different? Which kind of different? Scary different? Good different? You don't know. Well, we might actually know soon because I actually have one more stop on our cross-country ranked choice voting tour. Grand state of Maine. The great state of Maine. Proudly we sing. Super politically diverse, fiercely independent, like a lot of independent voters. And in fact, in, in 2016, there was this coalition of independents and Democrats that managed to get this ballot initiative that would change all statewide elections to ranked choice voting. Statewide? Yeah. Oh. And ranked choice voting was adopted in 2016. According to Maine Public Radio reporter Steve Missler, it passed. It passed, however, 
with a major flaw. It's a scam. It undermines the integrity of our election process. It was put forward by a group of The state Senate, which was under Republican control at the time, picked up on this constitutional conflict within a conflict within the state constitution. The reality is we're not happy with it. Blatantly opposed to it, very unconstitutional. The main constitution literally says you have to use a plurality vote. The word plurality is actually written in the constitution. As opposed to a majority. Correct. And ultimately the main legislature passed a, a law that delayed implementing ranked choice voting. This is one more example of where uh, The politicians are standing against the will of the people. And it set off this whole fight where where people rallied against the state legislature and held another vote. In June. Literally this past June. People gathered at the state house this morning. To get around the delay. Legislature through what was billed as a people's veto. That passed. By almost the exact same margin, if not slightly more, than when it passed originally in 2016. At some point, the main Supreme Court gets involved And really, the details of this are all kind of a mess, but what it boils down to is this. In the upcoming elections, like the midterms that are happening now, Maine will use ranked choice voting for its congressional races. We have three of them this year. We have a first congressional district race. It'll be used in that contest. And also in Maine's second congressional district. Which is a swing seat, one of, you know, a dozen or so nationally. AKA one of the districts that everybody's going to be watching in the midterms. And on top of that, they're going to use ranked choice voting for the Senate. The U.S. Senate campaign, it'll be used in that contest. Do you know, is this the first time it's going to be used uh, uh, for a position in the federal government? Yeah, no other state has ever done it. Oh, wow. But at the same time, because of their state constitution... It's not being used in the gubernatorial race. So does the ballot just, like, look insane? Like, part of it is, like, <laughs> this ranked choice voting thing, and and part of it is, isn't? and like it. They're just separate. So there's okay. separate ballots for the federal races, and then there's a separate one for the statewide one. So the, it, I haven't actually seen how many ballots that voters are handed. So this is really going to happen now, like like this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two main claims of ranked choice voting are being put to the test in the very first, in its very first rollout in Maine. Voters in Maine will head to the polls later this month. Whether it can work for uh, third party or uh, independent candidates. But it's also a test case about whether or not it does what it promises. He just told another big fib right in front of everybody Bruce, in Maine. you're lying about my record. Which is re- reduce scorched earth campaigns. Jared, I don't know where you're getting this. Tiffany you Bond, you 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 This is why we're getting nothing done. <laughs> 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 they go low, we kick. Most of DeSantis lied 21 times. You voted as much as you lied. Of course, I support that. You didn't have a course. Crazy. The Democrats, they've gone wacko. Trump supporters are going to You may not understand how the House and the Senate work. Also, I guess I I just wonder if the people of Maine are going to come out of this election feeling a little bit more like 
like democracy is working for them. Wouldn't it be interesting if in Maine, somebody who was, you know, everybody's eighth choice gets elected to Congress. <laughs> it could happen. <laughs> I don't, we'll see. <laughs> this Radio Lab was reported by Latif Nasser, Simon Adler, Susie Lechtenberg, Sarah Kari, Tracy Hunt, produced by Simon Adler, Matt Kilty, Sarah Kari, uh, and Susie Lechtenberg. Our story on PRS-TV was produced with support from RTE's Drive Time. Huge thank you to them and to AB for making that possible. Also thanks to Rob Ritchie at Fairvote, Don Sari, Diana Lagerman. Thank you to Anna Lerman and the rest of the team at the Varieties of Democracy Institute in Sweden, as well as Carolyn Tolbert, Bobby Agee, and Edward Still. I'm Robert Krolwich. And I'm Latif Nasser. And thanks for listening. And go vote. What the hell, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Hi, this is Jenna Calderoni calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Maria Matasar Padilla is our managing director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Habti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Robert Krolwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Arian Wack, Pat Walters and Molly Webster, with help from Shima Oliali, Katz Laszlo, and Mo Asabiomo. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.